I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, a place for friendly discussion and debate. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And this is the final installment, part four of four, discussing Sam Renahan's book on covenant theology. As a reminder, Sam Renahan's book is not a polemical book. It is primarily a lay or pastoral level introduction to what is covenant theology, but it gives us plenty of spots to discuss and to to do more polemical things, which I think we've done a little bit of in some of the previous episodes. And some of the other parts are just, let's talk covenant theology. What is it? What do we think about it? So this this final part, um, and I guess before we do it, I need to remind you, if you're just jumping in on episode four, for whatever reason, you didn't want to listen to one, two, or three, we've got Morgan Bird with us. So he's live and in the flesh uh, with us here. You know, most of our episodes are we do it behind a screen, which is a wonderful opportunity to talk with really cool people without having to like visit them. But it's always fun to be in the same room as somebody else. I think you get a little bit more interaction and fun that goes on with it. So part four of four, this is the kingdom of Christ. So we're covering things like the covenant of redemption, uh, the new covenant itself, and we're going to talk about sacraments, the new covenant sacraments, baptism, Lord's Supper. What does that look like? Do those fundamentally differ in practice from the sacraments of the Old Testament? So you've got, you think circumcision and Passover correspond to baptism and the Lord's Supper. How much do they correspond? Is there any link? Is there any connection between those two things or are they completely separate? Uh, So tune in to the whole episode to find out, I guess. I'm uh, what's your appetite. So let's get started. Covenant of Redemption, I think, is the first on the topic. Let's 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 talk about what is that. Yeah, so um, just a few passages that, that Renahan highlights uh, on the Covenant of Redemption. Um, he mentioned 2 Timothy 1.9, uh, Titus 1.2, but then the, the Old Testament like chunk passages that you'll want to look at are Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 50. But the gist of, of, of the Covenant of Redemption is that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit um, have... Uh, in eternity past, they have made a commitment to one another um, to save a particular people. Um, and the Father has, has promised the Son um, this this particular people, and the Son has has promised to do his part um, in, in saving those people. So the covenant of redemption um, was a covenant of work. So it's called God, God the Son has that uh, very specific commands that he has to fulfill um, for the blessings of this covenant to be attained. And Renahan says that, um, let's see, the son kept the law of the nature. So that is the moral law that we've already mentioned a couple times um, that you could look to Romans chapter two, the law written in our hearts. Um, that is also, um, was also a part of Adam's covenant of works. Um, so the son kept that law of nature. The son kept the law of Moses to fulfill all righteousness. So he's born uh, as a son of Abraham under the law of Moses kept um, the, the moral, the civil, and the um, ceremonial laws of the Mosaic system. And then third, Jesus kept the law of his own covenant, uh, taking a creaturely nature upon himself and giving up his life as a ransom for many. So that encompasses the incarnation and then um, Christ's entire life and work uh, on the cross. So the covenant of redemption, again, is what the Father plans, the Son accomplishes, and then the Spirit um, applies and the covenant of redemption goes into eternity past, and then the outworking and application of the covenant of redemption 
from our perspective is the covenant of grace. So maybe that lays the, the foundation yeah. of the covenant of redemption. I don't know if we want to say anything else. Yeah, so here's a question I have about the covenant of redemption. If these three Trinitarian persons are making commitment with themselves, does that imply social Trinitarianism? I, you guys didn't plan for this, so here I am lobbing in a, a grenade into <laughs> We're this over discussion. We're covenant theology. And you bring Divine simplicity, does it ruin that? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think the easy answer is... Um, is it easy? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No. No. Um, it's, it's just to say, you know, I think I think the Bible always speaks to us and it reveals God to us in ways we can understand. So I know it's a cop-out. Yeah. Um, but I think that, um, you know, and, and I think um, in, in any sort of Trinitarian thought, you, you've got to have some realistic distinction between the persons and you've got to have realistic union between the um, divine essence and the divine being. And so, no, I don't think, I don't think it poses a problem. I think it would be, um, I, I think even the fact that it is Jesus, it is the son, not the father, not the spirit who is, becomes incarnate, I think is helpful for us. And, and we get to see Jesus in his human and in his humanity, uh, pray and relate to the father in that way. And so you might have just asked a question that's over my head. By the way, you're sighing. Uh, I'm not but, uh, sighing. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, that's just, I don't know. That's just an initial take. I, I Dude, I, I was not prepared for that, so I'm not even going <laughs> to attempt to give you an answer. Why don't you try to give us an answer? I don't, do you I don't have a good answer. I was totally lobbing it to you and letting you guys answer it so that I didn't have to look like a fool. But I think that is a question that's going to come up. Because it implies different wills. Within the trend. Yeah, it, That's seems, the it sounds like it. Yes. When I'm talking about a covenant of redemption, these persons making different commitments, or they're not making different commitments. It just, the covenant of redemption, I think, has a tendency to sound like it would deny either divine simplicity or. I guess or, what you could say, and I'm just, this is probably going to get the podcast just totally blasted. I'm sure this is going to be terrible. <laughs> we get blasted. But, it all is, the time. but it's, but it's, maybe you can say it's actually the same commitment. Which to me seems to to preserve simplicity, but like viewed from seeing this, I guess this depends on. I mean, because if you if we understand the persons like those distinctions to be relations, then like that that's where the distinction between um, the the son, um, like the father sending and the son going, um, but but it's not like they're making two separate commitments that are meeting at sure. one point in the middle. It's actually the same commitment. Does that make sense? Yep. Makes sense. But I don't have anything else to say other than that. Yeah. Well, I don't think this answers your question, but I think it brings up a good question. In fact, I think the covenant of redemption creates unity within the Godhead. I think that we have a tendency. There wasn't unity beforehand. I think in our, in our uh, perspective, <laughs> I think that, I, well, I think in our perspective, it's easy for us to see, like, for example, like, and, and this is like, like you got Marcion who has like the, the, the bad, the big bad father in the old Testament and then the nice Jesus who comes to save us. And I think that the covenant of redemption uh, keeps us from, from thinking about things that way, because we realize, no, that there's the, this triune God who's working together to save us. Um, and that, you know, when, like, for example, when Jesus is dying on the cross, it's not like, um, you know, we, we, there have been the charges of like child, ch- uh, cosmic child abuse and that sort of thing. I mean, no, it, this was something that he did willingly. This is something that they, um, that they planned and that they have uh, enacted and carried out as in unison. And so I actually think the covenant of redemption 
um, gives us a handle to hold on to when we're trying to argue for the unity of 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 the gospel uh, as it relates to the triune God. Yeah, I think Scott Swain has an article out there on, on this type of topic, so I'm going to punt it to him and let him answer that. Uh, you guys can go read. So you that. created this mess, and now you just You've been baiting me for four episodes, and hey, I finally look. I finally took the bait. Look, it's it's way more fun for you guys who are listening to get some things like this. So the covenant of redemption, I think that's a good overview. I mean, it's just the idea that before the ages began in eternity past, whenever that is, depending on what you think about time, <laughs> maybe that's located somewhere. Maybe it isn't um, that there was this inter-Trinitarian covenant to save um, his people from their sins. So the new covenant of grace, Morgan, talk to us about it. Yeah, so um, basically, uh, there's there's actually a whole chapter on the ministry of Jesus where he shows that Jesus came and he um, he healed and he um, taught and he lived and he died and he rose, and that um, based upon him fulfilling the work that the Father had given him to do uh, in the covenant of redemption, um, he then mediates his work. Uh, to a people through a covenant of grace. So the covenant of redemption is a covenant of works, mm-hmm. but the new covenant is a covenant of grace. So it is, uh, he, I think the, the way he puts it is, it is a um, a covenant of works that has already been kept and that it, that, that, that is then given to um, God's people, those who, those who put their faith in Jesus. And so uh, the new covenant is a kept covenant of works. And that's why it is a gracious covenant that 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 cannot be broken. Um, and so it is, it's the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus has come to save His people and to to do what Adam did not do and to um, to do what what Adam failed to do. So Jordan, I want to get your thoughts on <clears throat> what uh, Renahan says on page one sixty four. Um, he says the new covenant is better than the old, not only because it promises lasting, perfect, heavenly forgiveness through the obedience uh, rendered outside of and a part of the one receiving it, but also because it promises to perform an inward work of renewal in the people of God. And then he references Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34 and Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. Um, so do you, on your understanding of continuity, discontinuity between the old covenant and new covenant, it seems to me that you don't, you don't see any distinction between um, regeneration and indwelling of the Holy Spirit um, between the old and the new. And it seems like here he is, he wants to see a little bit more discontinuity. Yeah. I mean, I go pick up Sinclair Ferguson's book on the Holy Spirit, read that. And that's my view, whatever Sinclair says uh, in that I'm I'm pretty good with. I I don't, I almost feel like what he's saying here, remember um, how he talks about the old covenant and he's already given us that law gospel distinction. So I don't know that he's saying that regeneration is somehow different. No, I think he, he's saying uh, that the inward work of renewal is but, new. But I, but I think he's saying that there were people, I think he would say that there were people under the old covenant who, by virtue of the coming new covenant, were participants of its benefits. Yes. In the same way that we are today? Well, I think that the diff, I think one of the differences is the visible invisible nature of 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 the church i think is one of the things that he talks about in here um i i think that okay this this goes what we were talking about earlier does when G, when jesus becomes incarnate 
you know, does something actually change? You know, is there something new that, that actually comes? Mm -hmm. And I think the answer has to be yes, but we've already established that the law gospel distinction, the, the reality of, um, experiencing salvation by grace. And I would say, which has to be by the Holy spirit was being enjoyed by people under the old covenant, but not by virtue of the old covenant. Is that fair? I, maybe I'm maybe I'm reading. So you know, when the what prophets predicted this coming of of you know I will cause you to walk in my ways and things like that, they're predicting something that's that's in space and time already happening. Um, I think I think it hasn't been formalized yet. I think it hasn't been um, formalized as a covenant yet. Because yes. this is this is where I I, I yes, I, but I think the answer has to be yes. I think they've they, they, they've been justified. Uh -huh. They've been sanct they're being sanctified. Um, they are part of the church. He, he goes on to talk about how they're part of the church, even though the church is invisible. They're they're part of the church, and so I think in, in some sense you you have to say that there 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 has to be some sense of continuity. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not um, I'm not saying I, I don't think that but, that's but true. What, but maybe what's di what he's saying is that it becomes it, the covenant becomes formalized mm -hmm. yeah, only for sure. only when Jesus actually arrives. Yeah. So here on 164 right after what Brandon quoted he mm -hmm. says the Israelites were criticized for the uncleanness of their hearts and commanded to circumcise their hearts but they were unable to do this and their covenant did not provide such a blessing. Mm -hmm. God promised however that he would effect this change and it is in the new covenant that th this blessing is granted. So I yeah and that's where like and I, I feel like I've asked like I don't know how many professors and and stuff this question. We we just asked somebody this in an episode the other day. But like, it's easier for me to understand. Okay, if we're dead in sin, and like all people are dead in sin in all places and at all times, then you know for anyone to be saved, that the Spirit has to regenerate them. Yeah. But then I read Acts chapter two, and I'm like, man, there's something different like going on with like the way the Spirit indwells people. Well, I don't see why he he couldn't have a a stronger, more powerful and that's dwelling ministry. Like, is it, that's why, or 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 the fact that the church has now become visible. You know, there there is now this community that the spirit is being poured out upon as a group, mm -hmm. and not not as you know. It's almost like under un, in the Old Testament pre Jesus, people are experiencing this, but they're experiencing it on an individual basis. Mm -hmm. And now, and I, and I think that's actually what you see in Acts. The plan of Acts is you're watching the gospel create the church mm -hmm. uh, in a visible way, and and that that outpouring of the Spirit in a, that fresh that fresh Pentecost outpouring, I think has more to do with um, uh, the affirmation that Jesus has arrived mm -hmm. than it does to do with something all of a sudden different happening inside of people. So would you say so like it let's just say like um you have a you have a dam and 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 there's just a little bit of water like getting through the dam and that let's just say that's old testament like and and so that's the spirit this is terrible i know but um yeah, it's brutal and, okay. and, and actually well, actually in Kuiper's work on the holy spirit this is the exact illustration well, maybe i read it somewhere yeah, yeah, then i don't know i have no idea uses. i yeah. certainly didn't know it was Kuiper if that's where i got it from yeah. but then i like it and in my mind <laughs> and like the so so the spirit is doing like he's getting through you know i guess mm -hmm. in in the old testament but then like the dam bursts in acts 2 and like now so so this I guess I don't know if the the Allison episode will be out when this comes out or not, but but we discussed this with 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 
Greg Allison, and I asked him, was it was it a um, the the change in the the role of the Holy Spirit from the old to the new? Was it was it just quantitative or was it qualitative? And he was very like sure that it was qualitative. Yeah, and it seems like you're saying it's quantitative, like it's more like now the dam has been broken, like big time, like work of the Spirit. But he's doing the same things that he was doing sporadically, I guess you could say. In the old, is that what you're saying? I, I'm not trying to make a point here. I'm no, genuinely yeah. trying to figure well, it out. Like this think, is something I've. And this really, I mean, Renahan doesn't really discuss this in the book, so we're just kind of going back and forth at this yeah. point. Yeah, I, I think it has to do with a few things. I think when the spirit, when the spirit is poured out at Pentecost, you you have this affirmation that the Messiah has has ascended. You know, I think, and I think that's part of it. I yeah. think you have the reality that the church, the invisible church has now become visible. Mm-hmm. And then I think absolutely you have um, the gospel is, is now going to the nations. You know, I mean, over and over again, Jesus talks, you know, it's, he's almost rude at times by saying, I came for, I came for Israel. I came for Israel. I came yeah. for Israel. And it's like after Pentecost, what, what breaks is that the gospel is now going out to the nations. And so there is, I guess you'd say, um, you know, something unique about it, but I'm not, I don't know. I have a, I think, I think that what Renahan is arguing is that there were people in the old covenant time mm-hmm. that experienced everything that we experience under the new covenant, but not by virtue of the old covenant. They experienced it by virtue of the new covenant and they experienced it not in the New Covenant community. Right. Um, I just... So, then for those people, there's really not much new in the New Covenant. It's literally the same. Well... There's some external differences. But but it's not because it's a different kingdom. Like, like in other words, um, they belong to the kingdom of Israel. And what's new? What's new is that it's now the kingdom of Christ. So I live in North Carolina. If I lived in Kentucky again, I mean, I experience the same exact benefits. I'm just in a different location. I think this gets into like so when 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 you talk about um, one covenant, two administrations. So now. Yeah. What is the difference in saying, okay, what is the difference in this second administration, using that terminology, in comparison to um, what Renahan is saying, that the the benefits of Christ are retroactively applied? So what's the difference in retroactive application and and the different administrations? I think that's where people are, myself, that's where people get Mm -hmm. hung up. It's Mm -hmm. like, what, what really on the ground is the difference? And I understand, you know, Obviously, there's a difference, and he's saying that look, the covenant, the new covenant, is cut like at the cross, like with the with the blood of Christ, like he's, it, the, the, excuse me, the covenant of grace. Um, whereas the 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 two administrations folks are going to say that the covenant of grace is cut, and in, in, but in but don't y'all think it also has to do with like like what I'm saying about the church? I mean, because because he argues that Israel and the church are not the same thing, right? And so he's saying. That there were that there were members of the new covenant church who lived yes. under in Israel, but yes. they weren't part of the church by virtue of being Israelites, right? And so, in some sense, I mean, maybe there's more than that. So there's questions in here that I like. Renahan mm-hmm. on one sixty six, he also mm-hmm. says the people of the old covenant were brought into being through natural generation within the confines of the offspring of Abraham. 
In the new covenant, the people of the covenant are brought into being by supernatural generation. That is regeneration. And that, I guess, corresponds with 164, what I read earlier, where it seems to me that he's saying that people in the Old Old Testament did not have regeneration. But I know he's not going to say that. He's going to say, well, retroactively, the new covenant, they're regenerated through the power of the new covenant. I, I, think, I think the key is that by virtue of that old covenant. I mean, he says this all the time. He says that you, you're saved under the Abrahamic covenant, but not by the Abrahamic covenant. Yeah. Like I've heard him say, I may even be in this book. Like I, I think he would say that Adam, you know, Adam was a participant of the new covenant. That Abraham, that 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 Moses, they were participants of the new covenant. Yeah, which of course, but, but for, not by virtue of the covenants that they brought. They they participated it in mystery form. Well, and for well for for Adam and those immediately following him who who trusted in the promises of of, of Yahweh, the the Presbyterian or you know twentieth century Reformed Baptist or whatever has the same question to answer about them because they still have that gap between Genesis three and Genesis twelve. Like, what about mm-hmm. those people? Like. See what I'm saying? So you still have to have some kind of retroactive application for those people. Am I right? Yeah. So, I mean, he goes on and he does more on 167. The new covenant, there are, in the new covenant, there are variations in quantity of knowledge, but not quality. And then he also says, the old covenant was very different. The people of the old covenant are described in general terms as hard-hearted, stiff-necked, wicked. Seeing the fruit of the spirit was the exception rather than the rule of the old covenant. Because this is because the old covenant in itself did not grant the new birth, nor did it provide the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So, I guess, I mean, but he, you see there how he's he's not talking about people under the old covenant. He's talking about the old covenant itself. Like in the Presbyterian model, they actually believe that it was through the virtue of the covenant of grace. Administer, administered right. through, I mean, the Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant are to them the covenants of grace yeah. by which they are receiving those benefits. What he's arguing there is, no, no, no. Those covenants themselves did not give the power or the means to regeneration. But there were some people who lived in that kingdom who by virtue of the new covenant were regenerated. So so he so, so that that quote you just read it's not so much he's not talking about people he's talking about the covenant itself. Yeah, cuz I have I have major beef with those who go in and say there's no regeneration in the Old Testament. There's no indwelling in the Old Testament. I'm like, dude, how else could you be a Christian? And I think it's just Well, and that's my thing. It's like I I just it's it's easy for me and this is just this is just maybe just the way I think. I don't know. For me to see, look, man, regeneration like got to be across the board like yeah. or how how is a spiritually mm-hmm. dead person mm-hmm. yep. gonna believe mm-hmm. i can it, it it is easier for me to see how there could be more of a difference because like i mean there's either new life or there's not like yep. that but but it's easier for, for me to see how maybe there can be more of a difference in how they were indwelled or, or whatever with the holy spirit versus post and i know you're saying it's not but i'm just saying it's easy for me to understand how that can be versus Versus trying to understand how somebody in the Old Testament can believe but not be even regenerated. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, 
Right. Um, and and again, the the commentary that you know the old covenant's very different. The people are stiff necked. The people are wicked. The people are hard hearted. And I'm like, man, I look around me. I'm like, I mean, we've got Mike Pence going out there and saying, you know, like fix our eyes on old glory. We've got you know like <laughs> people who are just like hardcore. Let's do whatever we can to support abortion. Just wild stuff. Like church across the board to me seems pretty confused, stiff necked and hard-hearted. So I don't see like this radical difference. I mean, the Bible definitely talks about it as a radical difference. Like, I don't think we can get around that. I, yeah. I was going to say, I think that that argument might be like, that might just be more of like, okay, well, anecdote, maybe we don't. that's an anecdotal argument, which is fine. But like, this is what, this is what there is a difference. There's a difference between acts, the church and acts. And how they're operating and what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. And even and even in some people, I mean, you do see like in some people there being a, a drastic change. I mean, I, I think that for Jesus Himself to tell the, the apostles, "Hey, wait here until I send the Spirit." Uh, to me, there, and I know I'm almost like I'm almost arguing against myself right now. But I think it maybe maybe it's more about the visibility of the church than it is a, and, and the. Now Jesus reigning through the church as the exalted Christ through his spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that that's something that's obviously different. So here's a confusion on the new covenant. John, I mean, John's got all sorts of stuff about the spirit mm-hmm. and when the spirit's going to come and the role of the spirit. What is it? John 20 at the end, Jesus breathes the spirit on them. What is their next step? It's like Peter's like goes, goes and goes fishing and like, Pretends like it's all over. And Jesus comes out, you know, he does feeds him breakfast on the beach and, you know, gets, you know, gets him straight. But I'm like, I don't know how else you take that breathing of the spirit other than like a Acts 2, like another version of Acts 2. Um, whatever it is, why aren't they acting so differently mm-hmm. if, if that's the way we want to take it? I don't know. I... I think this is a difficult and challenging area to understand how the spirit functions differently between old and new. I don't think it's clear cut. And but what we do know, like, like, okay, let's let's take this because you know if you guys pick up the book, you'll see that this is where Renahan basically transitions into systematic theology. He's now he's he's now drawing conclusions based off of this long sort of detailed exposition of these different covenants and let's just take it away he, he, he talks about regeneration but he also talks about justification so if we use justification instead of regeneration in this conversation what we know is that abraham was justified mm-hmm. by faith as a person who living under the old covenant time yeah um in the old covenant time and so in some sense i and, and this is where i think we get in trouble when we start taking the benefits of the new covenant or benefits of being united to Christ and start spreading them out as if the, as if as if you can like have some of them but not have others of them i think we get in big trouble and so i do think i think we have to okay maybe there is an escalation of some sorts yeah in the time period but i think pe- people being united to Christ whether you're abraham or whether you're peter or whether you're uh, jordan <laughs> Uh, but being united to Christ means receiving the virtue of Christ, and I think that mm-hmm. that I think that that has to be something. Or in other words, 
justification, I think, presents maybe a better example for us because it's not in justification. You're dealing with a declaration. You're not dealing yeah. with someone's life. You know, you know, we're not like you talked about the regeneration goggles. Yeah. You know, that, that we're always going to have people we can look to and try to wrestle with. But when it comes to justification, it's it's a better mode to look at it because it's God either says you are or you're not. You either are guilty or you're not. Yeah. And and we know that Abraham was declared righteous uh, by virtue of his faith. Yeah, no, that, that's good. I I, I mean, clearly, no one's going to disagree that justification differs for Abraham. Than it does for us. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Romans. I Romans think it's pretty, pretty clear, yeah. pretty clear <laughs> that that benefit is the exact same. Uh, so I do wonder, you know, like these key core benefits that say like Romans eight goes through. How do they fundamentally differ? I don't know. It seems more um, maybe this this filling that we see in Acts, where the Spirit is filling people for these unique, I guess, activities. Uh, you see that in the Old Testament, but it's much more infrequent and it's very centralized in prophets and kings and priests. It's not so democratized mm-hmm. where, you know, random Joe down the street who's just a local church member who, you know, works at a, at a you know, factory or something gets filled with the spirit. It seems like Acts is much more democratizing where everybody's getting these unique gifts in these unique ways uh, to to spread the gospel message beyond just Israel to all nations and all people, and that seems to be me to be a pretty radical difference, uh, where the Spirit is doing much more unique things, gifting wise. Not that he's changed regeneration; that he didn't do it, now he's doing it. Mm-hmm. Not that he was not indwelling, and now he's indwelling. But the way he's giving gifts uh, is unique and new. And I think that has to do with the church. I think that's I think that's the difference. I think you now have this visible church. I think I think it's Ephesians four where it talks about Jesus giving gifts to men, yep. like him, you know, ascending, giving gifts to men. You've got, uh, you know, I think I think um, I think we forget like Pentecost. I think Jesus intentionally um, poured out the Spirit on Pentecost for a reason. Pentecost had a prior meaning that there, it was this festival of first fruits, mm-hmm. and so now all throughout the rest of the New Testament, when um, when we are being called, the church is being called the first fruits. It's almost like he's saying, um, "We're the, the, the church at Pentecost was now called out as this visible people of God that were like this offering up to God of of of, of Jesus' own first fruits." Mm-hmm. Um, and that, so I, I don't know. For me, it's less about what happens in the individual and more about how God is how God has now established a new covenant community. Mm-hmm. And how his spirit is now working through this new covenant community because, and and he talks about this in here, Christ is resurrected. There's now a new creation, even if it is in inaugurated form in the body of Jesus. There There is actually a new creation in the very body of Jesus. And now by participation in this new covenant, uh, we are now called a new creation. And this is as close, the church is as close as you're going to get to the new creation before Jesus comes back. Mm-hmm. And um, so I don't know, for me, it's less about looking at soteriology and it's more about what happens to the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, that There's clearly something missing in the old covenant community. Yeah. But now in the new covenant community, uh, the blessings of God and the blessings of the new creation are being poured out in a unique and, and special way. That's good. All right, move on. What what's next? That we've I think we've um, we've well, sufficiently did, I, attacked that issue. I, I thought um, his his uh, discussion on apostasy was interesting, where he talks about like a you know my a friend of my son can come visit my house, but like if he 
he uh, starts sleeping in my guest room and claims to be my son, um, that doesn't make him my son. And so then he, he says, in the kingdom of Christ on earth, people make false professions, invisible to the eyes of fallible humans, and enroll in the wedding feast without a wedding garment. They are granted access to the sacraments of the kingdom and taste the powers of the age to come, but they remain illegal aliens in the kingdom. Their treachery is all too real. The apostate was not in covenant, but regarded as such. The apostate was not a member of the kingdom, but regarded as such. But the apostate is legally accountable and liable to the supreme king uh, and lord of the covenant kingdom. Apostates are to be treated as true traitors of the kingdom by their violation of the covenant and their treason uh, against the king. Like, <laughs> maybe I just don't get it, but like, it's hard for me to like, I, if, if what he's saying here is like a true picture of apostasy and what it means to like turn on Christ, I don't, I don't see how that fits with, um, someone who is brought into the covenant by someone else. For example, infant baptism. Like, because the picture here is somebody who's breaking into a community mm. that they don't belong to, and they're they're doing that like willingly and deceitfully. Whereas the other picture that that's painted under under a, a pedo Baptist scheme is that that's just the way things are designed to be. And that's not that's not being a traitor or or you know what I'm saying. Like it just doesn't yeah. I, it doesn't fit. I don't know. So I that got me to thinking, but. Well, and I, I think to be charitable, um, unfortunately, even many Baptist churches, we don't take this seriously. Oh, for sure. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And, 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 definitely, I, and I think definitely. that that would probably be one of my, if I was a Presbyterian, that would be one of my, yeah. Um, at least anecdotally, that would be one of my biggest issues. Is, and it is, if you ask them. Yep. You know, but, you that, ask but that's the just us being inconsistent yeah. with our own no, theology. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it seems it seems odd. I mean, it seems like, but again, again, it, it's their system. It's how they're approaching things. I, I think that's why a book like this is so needed. If you're if you want to take covenant theology seriously from a Baptist perspective, um, you want to be thinking through. Okay, how do I make the distinction between what happened in the old to what is now happening in the new? You know, I I love all this typology stuff. I'm pointing for. I'm showing how Jesus represents all these things. How am I going to make this distinction between circumcision and baptism? How am I going to make this distinction between Israel and the church? And I think he does that really well by giving us um, that, that two level typology thing. His definition of typology creates for us the ability to say, while something here can represent something here, it can also be other. It can also be something different. Yeah. Yeah, Paul Jewett's got his book, What Infant Baptism and the Covenant of Grace. I think he does a really good job at discussing that same thing, where I would say circumcision does have a spiritual referent, um, but that doesn't mean that it has to be practiced in the same way. It is a positive law, positive institution. So baptism, just like circumcision in my view, symbolizes regeneration, but that doesn't mean that the way you apply it is the exact same. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean that all of the reference are exactly the same. I mean, clearly they're different. One is a physical mark in the flesh. The other is a washing with water. 
So you admit that there are differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you just say, well, one of those differences is the, the administration. You administer it to only those who have professed faith. And that is the... That is a greater spiritual reality. Clear example consistent. of the New Testament. Yeah. I, I mean, no, I mean, you've got the household baptisms, but that I would, no one would ever build a theology on silence or on hope that yeah. there was an infant there when you don't know and there's no clear evidence of that. Yeah. You wouldn't do that in any other area. You just do it in here. And I know I'm probably making somebody mad, but that's fine. Well, you well, can email me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, Jordan, I think you're right. And I think that the argument you just made is, is, is um, the classic Baptist argument. It's the textual argument. Um, if you're out there and you're looking for something that's more theological, I think that's what this book is trying to do. I think Renahan is trying to show us that by connecting, actually, in a sense, um, baptism and membership. You know, you talked about circumcision uh, reflecting regeneration. Well, circumcision also reflected covenant membership. And if we get more serious about seeing baptism as as closely connected to church membership, uh, then I think we will, um, you know, do ourselves a, a, ser- a service because right now what we're doing by by only resting on the biblical argument, uh, we tend to separate baptism and church membership. We yeah. we tend to look at baptism mainly through the lens of me expressing my faith in Jesus. But if we if we actually look at the theological argument that Renahan is making, we see that you can't actually separate baptism and church membership. Those things go together. And so if I'm going to be um, trying to argue for my position, I think, I, think, I think he's serving us really well by saying, hey, yeah, the biblical, b- biblical argument is strong, but hey, guess what? Check out this theological argument. It's strong too. And by taking it seriously, you might actually do a better job of taking church membership seriously. Yeah, I mean, of course, when it comes to baptism, I mean, there's all sorts of inconsistencies in the Pado-Baptist scheme. And I can say that because this is my podcast and I can say what I want. So if you're a Pado-Baptist, sorry, not sorry, I stepped on your toes. But the reality is, I think Gavin Orland has a great article that came out in uh, whatever that, the Gospel Coalition's journal. And he basically is like, why not grandparents? So the idea is, if we truly want to baptize in the exact same way circumcision was practiced, uh, if my parents were not believers, but my grandparents were, I should be able to be baptized in virtue of their faith. And, and most Pado baptists don't want to well, take that step. You know, Renahan has a footnote in here. He says the Westminster Assembly debated the role of a profession of faith in baptism and decided that it, that the parent must make a profession of faith when bringing their child to baptism. The vote for this decision was twenty eight to sixteen. So, like, there was even disagreement on that in, in the Westminster Assembly. But I, before we wrap up, I mean, we have to say something about the sacraments. So, um, I like not that we haven't been talking about baptism for the last. Well, 10 I mean, minutes, just but. his his presentation of of that in the book. Okay, yeah, fair. Um, so. For both of them, he says it's a two-way declaration. All right, so he says baptism is a two-way declaration. On the one hand, it's God's visible promise that all who are in his Son are new creations by virtue of their union with Christ and his death and resurrection. He references Romans 6, 3 through 5. So that's that's God's declaration um, in baptism. And he says, on the other hand, it's the individual's profession of faith in those very promises. And he cites 1 Peter 3, 21 and 22. And... Uh, 
similarly for the Lord's Supper, he says it has two sides. On the one hand, it's God's declaration of forgiveness of sins to his people in the covenant, his visible word to them. That's what a, a sacrament is. And then on the other hand, uh, it's the people's pledge of faith and participation in those promises. We do not simply contemplate the sacraments. We celebrate and enjoy the sacraments. Given that the Lord's Supper, like baptism, involves active faith in the promises signified by the symbol, it takes on a special character because the church collectively professes its faith in the Lord's Supper. Yeah, so, that's good. That good. Uh, and I think Baptists have lost some of the two-way part in baptism, yeah. where it, all of the emphasis has shifted onto, it's my pledge of allegiance yeah. to Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and we've lost the declaration that God makes in baptism. And that's the reason you see people getting baptized three and four times. Oh, man. I mean, I've been baptized twice. I'm guilty. Um, <laughs> One time. <laughs> Because there is only one baptism. <laughs> I mean, yeah, too bad nobody taught me that when I was a teenager. I, I thought he did a good job in the book of talking about sacraments in in each of the covenants and showing how. I mean, I mean, I grew up sacraments kind of a bad word, you know. Yeah, sure. You know, I'm not I'm not used to that. Um, you know, where I come from, and um, you know, he he does a good job of just showing. Hey, there have been sacraments throughout in these different covenants, and they're visible these visible signs, and and he also does a really good job of showing that. Um, you know, I've heard people say this before, um, the, the sacraments like baptism or supper, this isn't typology. We're not like, this isn't mystery. This is down payment. Like this yeah, is yeah. us actually yeah, was good. participating in our new, uh, in the new covenant kingdom. When yeah. we come together with our church and we see these visible signs, like we're seeing, we're, we're seeing the down payment of the reality, not yeah. just a shadow of the reality. It's not like a foreshadow. It's a foretaste. Yeah. Like, right. cause you're already. Exactly. There's yeah you're there like in a, I mean it's the already not yet stuff like but yeah. you know there is there is an already like and that's what we're that's what we're participating in with the sacraments so. yeah and so it, for me if you're a pastor out here listening I would strongly encourage you when you have a new candidate who comes and you're going to baptize them emphasize of course their faith but also emphasize make the biggest deal about of God's promise of redemption, his promise of regeneration, the work he's done. This is an objective sign of his visible grace in our lives. And it's something that we, I think we take heart in. It's not just look what I did, but look what God has done and what he's promised to do and praise God for that. So I think that is largely missing for most Baptist churches and should be absolutely recovered. This, the supremacy of God's grace and on all things, including baptism, which is not just me. It's, it's a, it's a dual role. I think the Lord's supper communion, I think Baptists are pretty good about, you know, showing that this is Christ's work on the cross for yeah. us. In addition to uh, this is our response to it, but baptism, for whatever reason, we've lost that. But, but even that, I think Lord's supper tends to sometimes denigrate into just this opportunity for you to like, make sure that you're right with God. Oh, that's and, right. You know, yeah. You know, I think that we lose the, like the fact that this is like, this is a celebration. <laughs> like this is a celebration of the new covenant. This is a celebration of what Christ has done for us. I think that we, it doesn't always have to be this like somber experience. I mean, I, I know that there's a certain amount of examination. There are, there are clearly right and wrong ways that we should right. be uh, participating, you know, in the Lord's supper. But it's also a celebration. Like yeah. this is an excitement of, of a future reality that we know that we're going to get to participate in, and uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so, um, I think just like baptism, the Lord's Supper. I think I think we that's, have to fight hard good. for that. Yeah. yeah, overly focused on the examination and forgetting the spiritual nourishment that accompanies it. That's good. 
So I guess I think this has been really helpful. I've enjoyed the conversation. I hope you guys have too. If you have thoughts, questions, of course, uh, we love to interact. Um, Brandon's no longer on the internet, so you'll just have to email us. We'll respond to email. Morgan, I feel more freedom to say like stupid and offensive things now that people can't. <laughs> well, Morgan has online presence, but I don't think he really interacts at all. So I guess you'll just have to email us there too. But I'm on the internet, interwebs, so you can you can you know hate on me if you want. But we'd love the, more discussion, more thoughts. You know, feel free to drop what you think. Uh, what did we miss? What did we get wrong? What did we get right? What's what's helpful? What's useful? How should pastors use this? Uh, I, I think hopefully this is a helpful series that we've done. So we enjoyed it. Hope you did too. Um, we'll tune in next time on to all the other interviews that we keep dropping with all these cool people. And we thank you for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.